Hey! You mind if I take just one more look? Hey. Hmm? I just want to take another look at you. Hey, Esther. What? What's the matter? I was just taking another look. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. I pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance. To the band. It may perhaps discourage you, and not under your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now if you don't mind. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald. In this episode, we have part one of a special two-part series covering the legendary Hollywood cautionary tale, A Star is Born. In this first installment, we'll take a look at the movies that started it all. William Wellman's 1937 version starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, and George Cukor's 1954 version starring Judy Garland and James Mason. We'll also take a brief glimpse at Cukor's 1932, A Star is Born prototype, What Price Hollywood? This first episode will be entirely spoiler-free. To help me talk about the films, I'm joined by a very special guest host who's making his podcasting debut. You may have seen him on Twitter sharing his vast knowledge of music and film, and I'm thrilled that he's here today to help me tackle this ambitious project. It is my tremendous honor to introduce to you, coming in from San Francisco, California, Mr. Dave Finn. How you doing, Dave? Hey, hi, Josh. It's a pleasure to talk with you, um, and yeah, I'm a long-time podcast fan, and this is the first time I've been on one. That's awesome. I feel very honored <clears throat> that you chose me as your um, inaugural podcast. <laughs> to, yeah, to thanks. On. This is one I've been wanting to do for months now, and, and you're the first person who had any interest in discussing this with me. I think people were intimidated by it. Yeah, and this was an excuse for me to see the older ones, because mm. I have not seen them before and i saw the new one with uh, bradley cooper and lady gaga and really liked it was very moved by it i guess i'd seen the barbara streisand version before but i'd kind of forgotten it because it's, it's kind forgettable. of forgettable in some ways <laughs> but um but i'd never seen the garland version or the earlier one and so this was an excuse for me to go seek those out and i was pleasantly surprised at how um they're all like of a piece all four of them. It's they're am- all it's amazing, versions it? of the same story. It's pretty remarkable. It's really amazing. So before we really get into it, Dave, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. We were talking for a while before we started and, and got to know kind of our interests and our music tastes and movie tastes. What got you into being a music and film buff? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it's a loaded uh, question. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right, right. Let me put it this way. I was, uh, as a kid, was into comic books and star wars and star trek and listen to a lot of top 40 radio um you know watch the donnie and marie show and uh, the captain and Tennille show and all that kind of stuff um one of the first records i owned was the grease soundtrack loved that yes. movie <laughs> and does uh, it hold up for you now there's some there's some adult themes in there that oh, i don't yeah. that i was not aware of <laughs> like i remember having to there's this scene, 
are you familiar with the movie Grease? Oh yes, very much so. So there's this scene <laughs> where uh, Kinnicky maybe or or like uh, Stalker Channing's character is in yeah. the back of a car and they pull out a, a the a condo. <laughs> yeah, and I had no. You know, I was maybe ten years old. Yeah sitting in the theater with my dad and wondering, what is that? What are they talking about? <laughs> and he must have had just a, sh- a shameful look on his face. Like, Ugh. what did I bring my child to see? I had a very similar experience to that scene. Right. Cause I also but saw I it in the theater. The music, but I loved the yeah. music and, you know, to a kid, um, you know, to a 10 year kid in this, in the mid late seventies, you know, old fifties rock and roll sounds fresh, but especially uh, when Olivia Newton, John is singing it. And she and she's like this angel, and I mean, I I hadn't even hit puberty yet, but like here was this woman, and yeah. and I guess like even within the movie, she goes from Madonna to whore. I mean, like by the <laughs> end of the movie, me and my brother and some other friends would like sit around with a portable tape recorder and play records on the record player and pretend like we were radio DJs. We'd introduce the song, and here's Blue Moon. That was always kind of a, a fantasy dream job, was to, to work in a radio. And then um, at some point, I guess I heard Kiss, <laughs> um, <laughs> who were all over the place, 77, 78. My parents wouldn't let me buy any of their records, but I had friends who owned them, and I would borrow them and keep them on this little crappy tape deck i'd put the <laughs> t- i'd put the tape recorder up to the speaker <laughs> oh, that's and just record the record coming out of the speaker i didn't <laughs> i didn't know how like components were <laughs> yeah um like a component system of uh, left and right wires connecting everything but um <laughs> I know, so you probably then, you had uh, like mono versions of like the left channel of a kiss song mono yeah and in fact actually i borrow i remember borrowing my uncle had Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because I love that movie. I didn't know the Beatles at all. I think that's 78, the Bee Gees. Like that's, yeah. And actually, I believe Stigwood was involved in Greece. That's an art. Am I right? That's, yeah, I think you're right. Because it was, um, that was kind of his two, like there was Night, Saturday Night Fever and then Greece were like his two smash. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. So that Sgt. Pepper's movie with Frampton and the Bee Gees was the first time I really heard the Beatles because parents didn't really have any of their records. I borrowed the original Beatles Sgt. Pepper from my uncle and it's a stereo record and it's ex- very extremely panned left and right, you know, <laughs> on one side, drums on the other. And, and, uh, I put that little tape deck next to one of the speakers oh, and basically got <laughs> half of Sgt. Pepper on tape and it, just, it sounded terrible and it took me years to properly appreciate the Beatles. I wow. thought like, Oh, this is old fashioned. I don't like this. They're not like, but eventually, I guess, yeah, through Kiss, I got into like Hard Rock and Van Halen, Aerosmith, and the regrettable Ted Nugent. But you know, <laughs> all the greats which, again sounds good to a you know to a preteen. But it's funny talking about the the Beatles album. Is it's true that the stereo mixes for those albums were kind of terrible? Even now, like if you're at a store or something like that, and they play a Beatles song, like with the overhead speakers, it's usually only one channel, so you're only hearing like the bass and drums of a song. Yeah. While they're singing over it, you know, it's very strange. Yeah. Uh, long story short, uh, eventually I started playing guitar when I was in high school, and then got into being in bands and playing. Uh, you know, you know, you'd learn covers by ear or through sheet music, or something, and you know, partnered up with some people who were more experienced than me, and they really liked my bass playing. But at some at some point, I started writing songs and singing more, and. And then pursued music for a number of years, and that was enlightening, but also frustrating. And yeah. now, now I'm a house painter, 
out in California. It's not a career path that I like, imagined when I was younger, but it's suited me well for like the last 15 years or so. That's really um, cool. And I'm sure like in some ways it's still kind of fulfilling an artistic seed that's inside, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess I skipped the part where for a while I, I, I went to art school uh, when, I, when I was in college and was painting and drawing and printmaking and stuff. And that's where I thought my career was going to lead me. But mm. I was frankly more into music. By the time after four years of, I guess you mentioned it earlier about you go to music, you know, you love music and you go to music school and then you find it's kind of a drag. Absolutely. The, yeah. The program. And that's kind of what happened to me with art uh, was that by the time I'd gotten out of four years of it, um, the prospect of uh, going around to galleries trying to get shows, mm. try to sell work seemed really daunting yeah. and not very fun. And I was much more into music then that seemed more vital to me so i was living in new york city uh cbgb still existed wow like, my band got to play at cbgb's a couple of times you know i saw great bands play there i was in the city at a good at a good time like the indie rock thing was just starting to happen like mm. i got to see sonic youth a lot and like before oh, that's they awesome. became really big and uh so I, I was in the right place at the right time even though i didn't have like a huge you know a big successful music career i had a really good time and was part of a you know an active scene you really got to experience um, something special with that yeah so i have no regrets about that and I, at the same time i was working in a uh, my day job working in a record store and uh, we're talking like late 80s early 90s right when cds cds had been out for a few years mm -hmm. but by that time they had officially taken over vinyl Record labels weren't even making vinyl anymore. So the big thing was you know, every week when the major labels would put out CDs, they'd be reissuing classic albums, you know, for the first time on CD. Wow. So it was, it was good business to begin in retail because there was no streaming. <laughs> there was right, no streaming right. And you weren't so, so everybody who had a record collection was looking to replace their record collection on CD. Um, right. Yeah, granted, those are huge draws. Having the the reissues back, like in the late '80s, that was a big deal. You know, a lot of times they weren't remastered. They sat. They just like the old tapes that they had lying around for years. And yeah, a but, lot of hiss. <laughs> a lot of hiss. Exactly. Um, but no one was complaining about it back then. Um, everything was in long boxes. Do you remember those? Oh yeah. Yeah. I forgot long about boxes. those. Like the big cardboard things <laughs> that were designed to fit in the old record shelves. Wow. I the old, the record shelves. never knew that's why they had those. I remember those very clearly. That was part of it. But the other part was that people, it was theoretically an anti-theft measure because they thought regular CDs are so small, you know, the little you know, square like the jewel cases or what the jewel them. case that yeah. people could swipe them easier. So theory that long box would make it harder for people to steal. <laughs> Which is it's so funny now because jewel cases are so much harder to get open than the cardboard boxes were. <laughs> right. And I wish I'd saved my long boxes. I, every once in a while I'll see people save with their long boxes, but yeah. So always threw them away, but not realizing that they would <laughs> collector's items that's so cool but they were ultimately a huge waste of cardboard yeah <laughs> and, you know there was really no reason for it you know there was no need for practical 
with them. Sorry, yeah, when I talked about CDs replacing vinyl, it's it's more like CDs replaced cassettes. There was this window, I guess in the really the mid-80s, where cassettes were like the dominant thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I That was the Dark Ages. <laughs> right, right. I used to you know, buy record, buy an LP, tape it mm-hmm. right away, and then never play the record again. Bring a cassette with me. You know, I'd have a you know a Walkman or a play it in the car or you know play it on a boombox. But I would rarely play the vinyl unless I was at home. But cassette was so revolutionary. Portability of it. I remember how blown my mind was the first time I saw a, like a car CD player. Oh, geez, right? That was nuts. Because I remember, like, I had a, um, like, a disc man. I had some kind of hookup to my dad's car where I could, like, plug it into the headphone jack, and then you could hook it up to the stereo, and I thought that was the coolest thing. But any, any tiny little bump in the road, it would, the whole thing would skip. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and then they actually installed them into the, you know, into the car itself, and that it was just unbelievable. While we're on this subject, I'll just, I'll just bring it into the, the movies just for a second. So the record store I worked at, was in Midtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. a couple of blocks away from um, Times Square and all the Broadway theaters. And we had our record store was known mainly for classical. I was in the pop department, and we were just a regular kind of mainstream pop. No major imports or to speak of. We didn't sell used records. We didn't deal with a lot of independent labels, but our, our store had a good reputation for uh, for classical music and show tunes and stuff. You can imagine like in that neighborhood of the city of, of Manhattan, being so close to Broadway that there was a lot of clientele of businessmen or men from all around the city who were big into show tunes. So as I, as I said, like because these were new, you know, all these classic old musicals and cast recordings were getting uh, released all the time. So it was mm-hmm. a deal. And, you know, we'd be in the pop department, like trying to sell the latest Madonna or <laughs> Celine Dion. I remember right. <laughs> I worked there like Celine Dion and the first Mariah Carey record oh, came wow. out. And like everybody <laughs> loved it. This was back yeah. when VH, VH1 was the thing. And that was this whole new kind of yuppie adult pop music yes. channel and that was our clientele like most of the time you know so i was really into indie rock and underground stuff but we didn't really sell that music but we would have these regular customers that would come in every week and they would eat up these show tunes was that kind of like educational for you in a way to, to learn was, about these it yeah it was huge like yeah and um and in fact we had a really good jazz that's when i got into really into jazz we had a buyer and if, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, you know, you've got your jazz department, but you've got to have someone's got to order those records. So they've got to look at the new released schedules and figure out, well, how many of this do we want and how many of that? Yeah, I didn't know anything about I didn't know much about. Yeah, I'll be humble. I didn't know much about jazz, but we had a <laughs> jazz guy who was really knowledgeable and I learned a lot from him recommending stuff and sometimes we'd play it in the store or sometimes I'd buy it and uh, I learned a lot. My point is that in 1989, Judy at Carnegie Hall came out on CD, meaning I worked in that record store when that Judy Garland record came out on CD. That's from 1961 and I got an earful of people coming in and, oh my God, this is on CD. This oh, is great. I bet that flew off the shelves. <laughs> and right, yeah, so that was a huge deal to people within that community let's say i didn't really know judy garland i from wizard of oz of course and at the same time you know like all of barbara streisand albums are 
were coming out on CD. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not all of them, whatever. But but I became keenly aware of like, oh, she's like an icon. Might even had like a, some live album come out at that time because I guess she still toured back then. Relating to A Star is Born, like, I became aware, even though it was not my scene, like show tunes and cabaret kind of stuff, but that these two women were revered. One of the interesting things about this franchise of films is that these iconic women are essentially playing roles where they're nobodies. And we have to yeah. s- suspend a little bit of disbelief for that. Right. My Judy experience, the Wizard of Oz as well. I think I had seen maybe a couple of her like Mickey Rooney movies. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't stand that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But like I knew when she does that song on the trolley, that was a real iconic one. Just I kind of knew a little bit about her. Barbara Streisand was somebody I never, even now, I'm just kind of whatever towards, I don't, neither of my parents I, ever listened to her. I think she has a great instrument. I think her vocal, her voice is fantastic, but I don't know that I really like her persona. She's like really hit her, she, I don't really yeah. like that much on screen. And it's interesting that, that she had a music career and movie career just mm-hmm. like Judy Garland did a movie star but also a recording star and Lady Gaga who hasn't made that many movies yet but she's got the talent for it I, I wonder down the road whether she'll pursue doing movies more I wonder how much she idolizes them I mean they're certainly like a model for her I think she's a little bit more performative as a person than either one of them like yeah. I think she kind of it lives in that world more than the other ones again I kind of jump in the gun a little bit but it, it surprised me that people were so surprised that she could act because that's kind of what she's always done yeah somebody maybe it was Meg on Twitter yeah <laughs> Megan Megan Stemwade she, she was on this she once. might have uh, yeah okay so she I think she commented about that too or you guys had like a dialogue about that about, yeah like, yeah she's been like performing for like at least a decade. I picked her for a week of rock solid uh, single of the days last year. I picked like five Lady Gaga singles in a row and I was re-watching all those videos from the 2000s and yeah, she's acting that entire time. Yeah, and what a performance artist she is. It's something and I so, didn't yeah, appreciate at the time. Yeah, so it's natural that she would become an actress. And um, right. again, also jumping the gun, like you know, she co-wrote the song Shallow and she gave this crazy acceptance speech. Did you watch that? Yeah. On the Oscars? Mm-hmm. Like in which she was in character giving yep. this acceptance speech, like some dumbstruck, naive young starlet. just like thanking so graciously all her co-writers and her director and just so humble. And it was to my eyes, it was like clearly an act. But if you didn't know her, you might think she, wow, she's really starstruck it's funny while i do feel like she's acting 99 percent of when she's in the public eye at the same time i also don't feel like she's being insincere does that make sense i feel like it's coming from a place of being genuine but it's almost like she doesn't know how to project it in a way and i'm not criticizing her for it but it isn't maybe self-aware enough yet as an artist to be able to not funnel it through that persona that could be but anyway, thank you for, for joining me in this discussion. I, like I said, I've been really excited to talk about these movies. I, I love them all in their own individual ways. I dislike them all in their own individual ways. So much to discuss. Yeah, so what is your history with four films? The first one I saw was Judy Garland. I must have been nine or ten years old. I was very, very young. And I think I caught it on like a Turner Classic Movies or something, or back when AMC was showing classic movies. And yeah. I had taped it. I grew up as a theater kid and I was really into musicals and movie musicals and I just really, really enjoyed it. And I remember I didn't have the tape long before it was taped over 
And so I really, oh, no. I, yeah, I <laughs> it was some, some dumb thing. Somebody grabbed the tape and taped over it with like a, I don't even remember some movie. And, um, I found it at, not long after though at my local library. So I, I took it out again and I watched it over and over again and I would renew it and watch it over and over again. I just became really, really not obsessed, but I really, really loved this movie. And I was fascinated as to why are they showing still pictures instead of the action and, and we'll get into that and we'll get into that and it's just the whole thing was very fascinating to me and i loved the story and uh-huh. i loved judy and and thought she was just amazing at one point my dad had mentioned just kind of on the off the cuff that oh yeah there was like a newer version of it too with barbara strays and i loved that one when i was in high school and i said like, really there's another version and i'd known the song evergreen i never knew it was from the star is born finally when this new version came out it reignited my interest in studying all of these films and they were a lot more readily available so leading up to watching the new one i watched all three of them back to back to back monday i watched the first one tuesday i watched the second one i took wednesday off thursday i watched barbara streisand and then friday i went and i saw the newest one wow and uh it's commitment Commitment it it really was yeah (laughs) i love this franchise i think it's fascinating and i think it's really really amazing that you can take these same themes over the course of almost an entire century and kind of transplant them into any time period and they still resonate it's an american fairy tale so there's this american dream of uh rising from nothing and becoming a success yeah it's very much like a rags to riches fairy tale yeah like you said there's also an element of speaking of fairy tales of the ugly duckling who grows up to be revealed to be a swan. I think in almost every one of these, there is a uh, makeover scene where the producers or directors are, you know, literally, literally have the starlet in a chair and are like applying things, face makeup and talking about like, Oh, her nose is the problem. She becomes a success. She, I mean, she's groomed, but she's not, but she, she goes through this process of uh, beautification and the renaming and comes out on the other end of it, a star. But she had that within her all along. Yeah. You know, she was talented from the start um, and she kind of goes through this Hollywood machine and, and is spat out the other end and it's becomes funny, huge. I think the older ones are a little bit more critical of the of the Hollywood system, so to say. I think the newer ones are maybe less interested in criticizing the industry and the machine. The first ones maybe function a little bit more as a cautionary tale and kind of breaking through the facade of, of Hollywood. Yeah. People say Hollywood loves nothing more than a movie about themselves. Yes. <laughs> the people love the idea of making it big and succeeding, but they also like the idea that oh, the system is corrupt and it corrupts people. So it's okay if I don't make it because the whole thing rock. There's also this notion that one can have a romantic life and a professional career. These movies kind of show that, you know, you can't have it all. You can't have both of those things. One one of those is going to suffer. They're about success and artistry and technical achievements, but they're also romantic. There's rom-com aspects to some of them what's cool about them too is they're also very much like a product of the times that they were made definitely the gender politics the women are way more subservient in the first two but Mm -hmm. by barbara streisand's time she's like a woman's liber i mean she's literally not wearing a bra during Mm -hmm. some scenes (laughs) she's burned her bra by that time and she doesn't she doesn't get pushed 
down by him. By the same token, in that Barbra Streisand version, Christopherson is kind of more of a monster than the men men are right. in the other movies. At the worst, the men are sad and pathetic, but Christopherson is actually kind of uh, um, you know violent and and out of control, and he's using hard drugs. And that's like a 70s thing, too. But it, it's even more a contrast with Barbara Streisand. Well, the funny thing is that she's not passive. And I guess by the time you get to the Bradley Cooper version, he's actually more fleshed out as a character than the men are in the other movies, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, he's given a pretty nuanced backstory, which was yeah. totally lacking in all the other ones. It's far and away the most fully realized of all the male leads. Yeah, almost to the expense of the Alley character of yeah. Lady Gaga. My note says, compare to ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea being that this idea of having a romance and a career. Right. And how that band was made up of two married couples all already professionals within the industry and they came together their love lives and their professional lives and made it huge for a number of years it took a toll i'm sure the touring the press and whatever wrecked those marriages you know to the point now where they they can't even do a reunion you know you and i were dissing the the mama mia movies (laughs) Which have their fun moments, you know, and some great songs, but bad singing. (laughs) But um, I'd rather see the I'd rather see the ABBA Stars Born about the disillusion of these relationships, you know, the highs and the lows. And yeah, this movie is a reminder to the general public that not everything is as it looks in the Hollywood system. Right. So the first movie is not a musical they are both film stars the second film Mm -hmm. he is a film star she is a musician who wants to break into movies i was a little unclear about that was a little strange. yeah i think that she the way i always read it is that like back in the 50s that was the golden era of hollywood musicals so to really break into the industry you had to be you had to be a triple threat then the third version in the 70s is they're both rock musicians Mm mm-hmm there no neither one is a film star, so that's a, that's a huge change moving it away from Hollywood and then moving it into rock and roll, which was a burgeoning industry in the seventies. By the post Summer Love and post sixties, the music industry was was gigantic, and it also was probably in in you know, in Hollywood. A lot of the record labels had their headquarters in L.A., um, so it's still kind of a Hollywood story, but it's shifted. He's a rock guy, but. She, what is she doing? <laughs> what is Streisand yeah, doing? She's like maybe she's kind of a cabaret singer, but she's also playing like dancey disco <laughs> R&B. Yeah. Adult contemporary kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then the next movie, the split is rock and pop. Although right. I'm not sure if that's accurate. Uh, Bradley Cooper is presented as kind of like this alt tree classic rock guy who seems to have been around since the nineties, maybe. Yeah. I think that's mentioned at some point, but he's not really country and then uh, lady gaga's character he she pursues pop music but she starts out i mean the first time you see her she's singing in a, singing drag, in a, bar. In a drag bar singing a, a standard rose right yeah so she also has is, is coming from like a cabaret thing so they're not working within the same field i, I feel like this in the streisand version they're both generally trying to do a similar music and then the other general thing i wanted to say about them is that the second is a remake of the first and the fourth is a remake of the third i was really shocked when i first saw the trailer for the bradley cooper star is born 
because I, like I said, I had seen the Barbara Streisand version and just from first look at that trailer, I thought, wow, he's just remaking that 1976 movie. Whereas you would never mistake it just from the trailer as a remake of the, of the Garland. It's so it's easy. It's convenient to group the first two together and the second two together. Yeah. Even those, though all of them have the same story. And they follow the same template. Like they have all the same beats and rhythms to the story. The, Even some of the same lines. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly. Or, or paraphrasing of lines. And I find that really fascinating. It's like the Bible. Or it's like the New Testament mm, where you've got mm-hmm. four different tellings of the same tale. They all have different <laughs> details, but they all, you know, the four Gospels, like the Gospels are all right. telling basically the same story, but with different incidents in them and different supporting characters and whatever. And, right, right. Different perspectives. Um, and, I, and I was trying to think if there's, you know, within Hollywood, remakes are made all the time. Yeah. And they always have been. But somehow it seems obnoxious <laughs> to us sometimes. Right, right. But there are good remakes and there is yeah. value in it. Absolutely. Um, you know, especially if you're updating things and, yeah, bringing putting setting yeah. things in new context. I liken it or... to kind of like when people do covers. There's a clear difference between when you're performing a cover and you're just copying the song and the the, the stylings and the performance versus when you cover a song and you just kind of take the, the germ of the song and redress it and make it your own. There's so, value to that. Yeah. There's still artistry to that. Totally. So I, but this made me think like, is there such a thing as like a cover album? Like, could yeah. you do, could you, could you remake Sgt. Pepper, but but not literally cover the songs? Could you write a, your own new version <laughs> of Sgt. Pepper? Like, yeah, they know it's an interesting you know, question. Somehow in, somehow in Hollywood, they're able to do that, remake yeah. a thing without literally covering it. But I wondered, like, if I can't, I can't think of an analog with, like with within within music. Uh, in yeah. classical music, they do it, where people you know compose variations on a theme by Sibelius or something mm-hmm. <laughs> and they'll take like a you know a melody or a harmony or a chord pattern from right. a piece of music they love and they write a whole new piece based, based on, on that, that one that piece. one motif or, right. or something yeah you know i guess in pop it happens where people will just make sound alikes of things like oh that song was a big hit 2 months ago like it's just right like all those like little that. algorithms of like, oh, this beat's catching on, so we have to make more songs that have the same beat, <laughs> so we yeah. can make we can keep churning hits out. So I'm thinking, do you, uh, do you want me to read? I wrote like kind of a general synopsis for all four of them. I should probably throw out there that we're going to kind of split this in two. We're going to do like a spoiler-free section, and then at the end, we're going to go back and touch upon some spoiler stuff. So, yeah, I saw this new one last year. It came out in maybe October mm-hmm. of last year, and I really wasn't that familiar with the earlier versions. So there were three lines and plot points that genuinely surprised me. Even though you know the story's been told many times, I don't want to assume that everybody has seen the movie. Even if you have, it's fun to be spoiler-free for a while. It is, yeah. So the overarching premise for all the films, it's that of a young female ingenue who's trying to make it in the entertainment industry, in whichever milieu she, she is reaching out for, and she falls under the wing of a famous self-destructive star who's kind of starting the decline of his career. And through his connections and devotion to her and her talent, bolsters her into stardom and watches her star rise while his starts to slip away in a haze of booze, drugs, and you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
essentially. <laughs> and while her career triumphs, it becomes sullied by his self-destruction and ultimately leads to tragedy. I have a kind of a similar outline where it's like, yeah, the woman is up and coming, aspirations of, of making it in the business. The man is already established in his career. Mm-hmm. He hasn't quite dropped off, but he's plateaued. And I think in all four of them, when you first meet the guy, the lead man, he's drunk and does something kind of goofy and embarrassing. And it could actually, it could arguably be all four when we introduce him. He's, he's, I think you might be drunk. right. Yeah. Um, he sees something in her right away. Like she's charming at mm-hmm. least. And in some of them, like he's even seeing her perform. That's his first thing of her right. is mm-hmm. he's singing and he's just blown away. He's like, oh, mm-hmm. I got to know this lady. And he's already, because he's a famous star already, she's a little bit starstruck, but also, why is this guy talking to me? Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I'm nobody. It, you know, meet cute. You know, it's, a, it's like a rom-com formula. He falls for her. She's a little incredulous. And then there's this whole supporting cast. There's a producer slash manager character. He's already in the industry, and he basically sells his find to his producers and they see her quality too this producer ends up taking this woman to the top sometimes to the having to neglect the the man's career so that producer character is a key player in the story he's the third wheel basically that's helping her rise to the top he's had a long history with the, the man so he's sad to see you know his buddy decline and he tries to save him much as the, the the woman does that's a valuable character then there's a fourth wheel yeah. <laughs> who is a press agent who works for the studio or work producer and his job is to promote the this new find yeah the new find. and in a couple of them he's especially the first two he has like a contentious relationship with the male star because the male star is a screw up. The press agent's job is to make the star look good. And mm-hmm. this guy keeps screwing up and getting <laughs> arrested for drunk driving or right. getting into brawls and bars and stuff. Like I think every one of these movies has somebody get punched. <laughs> so he's another character. There's a lot of driving. I noticed in first two, the star, the male, has a little sports car and he's tooling around the city with oh, his yeah. new girlfriend sitting next to him. There's just a lot of scenes that take place in cars. And then yeah. in the later versions, in the 70s and then the 2018 version, there's a lot of limos and motorcycles. So there's a lot of key scenes that take place you know, before or after a performance in the back of a limo. Or an airplane in some airplane. cases too. Oh, yep. Helicopters. Yeah. Helicopter, right, yep. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> Helicopters in the Barbra Streisand Christopherson one. That's true, because the newest one, they have the private jet. The private jet, right. <laughs> um, when you're seeing a movie just on its own, you don't really notice a thing like that. But when right. you see, like, four movies, <laughs> right. like, within, you know, I did catch up. It's a very cool observation. I really never picked up on that. I guess maybe there's a metaphor. They're traveling together and they're in this vehicle together sometimes he's in control sometimes someone else is in control right there's a best friend character in most of them so in the first two movies and again this this supports my theory that the first two are you one is a remake of the of the earlier one because in both the first two the press agent's name is matt libby and director slash producer's character is oliver niles and the best friend character is 
Danny McGuire. In the 37 version, he's a he's an assistant director. So he's mm-hmm. kind of like a low man on the totem pole, but he has a job at a studio. And he helps get Esther's foot in the door. I guess they're platonic friends. And I wondered when he first showed up, because she moves into the boarding house as mm-hmm. him. That, yeah. That's another old-fashioned. That's, oh, that's very much that's, so. That's a 1937. For $6, what was it, $6 a month or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she she's brand new to the city, and she wants to become a star. And yes. uh, she runs into this guy in the hallway, and he's very friendly. But I immediately thought, like, oh, you know, is he going to – are they going to date? Is he interested in her? You know where my but mind no. went right to was, oh, is he going to, like, assault her? <laughs> well, right, right, right. But he's, you know, he's like a jovial guy and whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, it could have gone in any number of directions. But he's around some emotional support for her. And then I guess maybe disappears at a certain point. But in the 54 version with Judy Garland, this uh, Danny McGuire character – is a member of her band. And he's very supportive of her making it big. And in fact, I think at some point she quits that band. and Which he does not take kindly to. Yeah, right. He gives a real hard um, time about it. Notably, in the Streisand version from 76, there is no best friend. And I'm sure um, they had something to do with Barbara not really wanting to share screen time. Right. right. <laughs> um, she also, you know, she has no family to speak of. Yeah. In the Gaga version... Um, the guy's name is, I think, Ramon. Uh, Ramon, right. And yeah. the actor's name is Anthony Ra- Ramon. Ramos. Yeah. It's pretty obvious from the beginning that he's gay, which led me to, in fact, I think you later, like, see, he's got a guy right. <laughs> in his hotel room. Yeah. And he but works he's at the drag bar and everything, right? He works at the drag bar and he works with Allie at her catering gig. Is that what oh, they Okay. Yes. Yeah. With some kind of food service you see a lot of him early in the movie and he ends up going with her to arizona mm-hmm. to that concert no i guess it's coachella that right, concert right. on the private jet like so she, he's her companion so he gets a fair amount of screen time in that movie it's interesting that it's pretty clearly stated that he's gay you've got the drag bar thing in the beginning and they never make a big deal about it i wondered if in those earlier versions, whether there was like an implication that, oh, this best friend character is gay. Yeah, I don't or know. He's at least not – there's nothing weird about it, but it's right. it's He's very non-threatening. They're not <laughs> – and they're, they're not a romantic influence. Uh, right. There's not a lot of romantic conflict uh, like of other partners in any of these. You never see the male stars like ex-wives – I mean, it's mentioned yeah. in Barbara Streisand that she had an ex, that she has an ex-husband, but right. we don't really know much at all about them. You're right. I stand corrected. It's just interesting. You know, I guess it's implied that Bradley Cooper probably has groupies, but you never see it. It's interesting how there's kind of a clean slate on that, at least on that. So those are the, like the main cast of characters. The first movie, there's a grandmother, and then in the new movie, there's a father. And just in these two extreme examples, you get a family member of the actress. Yeah, because in the first one, we see her family very briefly, but they're very dismissive of her, to I, say the yeah. least. <laughs> and I'll get into that, uh, I think, a little more. But yeah, yeah. Sam Elliott in the 2008 is technically his half-brother. So he's got a family member, and she's got a family member, her father. Right played memorably by Andrew Dice Clay. Andrew Dice Clay which, in a huge departure role for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I made, I mean, 
we could publish it, I suppose. But I made this <laughs> spreadsheet listing all these things. Yes, uh, it's because a beautiful I needed, spreadsheet. I needed, to, I needed to wrap my head around the similarities of all these four different versions. I want to talk about plot stuff. The, the couple has a, a meeting. He's drunk. <laughs> there is some kind of live performance debut that mm-hmm. the man encourages do or he presents her somehow he convinces his production team to take her under their wing and there's a screen test and that sometimes involves a makeover or a name (laughs) change their romance is going strong and they have a wedding which is secret i think Mm -hmm. all four of them they run off in a lope Yes. Yeah. To the chagrin of the press agent yeah. <laughs> who, who wants to make a big deal about it because right. the woman's becoming a star. This is a huge God. PR moment for them that it's just slipped through their fingers. PR moment. <laughs> and, but they run off and do this in secret, pisses off the press Then they have a little cute honeymoon. They buy or build a new house together. I guess in the first two is kind of like on the coast in the Bradley Cooper. I guess it's in the Hollywood Hills somewhere. And then in the Barbara Streisand version, they literally like blows a patch of desert. Yeah, build, it's so strange. <laughs> build this like ski chalet there. Right. Like this weird like wood paneled barn. Yeah, or and something. they sleep in like the, the loft. <laughs> and it's, it's like in the weird. middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? But, uh, <laughs> going back to what I said at the beginning, you know, it's this American dream. Uh, we fall in love and our career going fine and we're going to build this love shack <laughs> together <laughs> right. she continued the success of the protege slash stalling career of the mentor sometimes it's because he's a screw-up because he's a drunk is he giving bad performances or is she just so good i think it was that people were just simply more interested in her because she was an upcoming talent and his reputation had kind of gotten the best of him and they maybe he's not getting good roles anymore Yep, not getting good roles anymore, and he just was not as bankable as he once yeah. was because the public had collectively moved on. Right. So career-wise, I'm pretty sure all of these, he's very much behind what she is doing. He's supportive of it. But it does seem in all the movies he doesn't quite get it. You know, her career choices and the role she chooses to play or the music that she chooses to make, they elude him a little bit because yeah. it's not of his wheelhouse. Right. Then there is an award ceremony debacle. Oh, yes. <laughs> One of the iconic career, moments of all the movies. Her career has now gotten so hot that she's winning an award. Mm-hmm. In the first two, she's winning an Oscar. In the last two, there's a Grammy. I think in all these cases, these are awards that the male has won previously. As much as he loves his wife, he is bitter. And there's almost a sense, particularly in the early versions, a sense of being emasculated in some ways. Yes. Oh, speak. Which there is, I have a note about this, that there is a scene in a bunch of them where his wife is off doing her thing. He's at home in their Playing mansion. golf. Oh, God, right. <laughs> and a mailman comes to the door to deliver a package. Oh, yeah. And says, like... Mr. Vicky Lester, which was yeah, his right. stage name. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it happens to Chris Christopherson, too, I think. Yeah, that's part of like the gender politics, I guess, mm-hmm. of the time. So... At this award ceremony, the guy makes an ass of himself. And really derails her triumphant moment. Yes, exactly. It reminded me of that Kanye Taylor Swift Right. Moment. Yeah, it was very much At like the, that. Was that Grammys? Or was that V8? Was that MTV uh, I think Music it might have been the MTV something? Awards. I don't totally yeah, remember. Yeah, it was, right. And I'm going to assume everybody knows what that was. But she won some award and then barely got a word out. And then Kanye West came up and was like, 
uh, you know. And like ripped the microphone out of her hand, basically. Yeah, and was like, yeah, this should have been won by Beyonce. She made the best video of the right. year. Totally disrespectful. And then at the end of the show, Beyonce won for that video. Right. Like it was, it was the wrong category. Like he right. was mad at the wrong category, basically. Beyonce <sighs> ended up winning anything. And it was. It I could get into a whole thing about that one, but that's, we'll save it for another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I mean, that guy's a piece of work. I can't even. Sure. I like some of his music, yeah. but oh, yeah. like, he is unbearable. And I'm not even the biggest Taylor Swift, but no. it was the ultimate, like, mansplaining. <laughs> oh, my God, I know. <laughs> moment. Awful. Um, but yeah, that's essentially that's what, what happens in this. But these are even worse because it, I think, yeah. you know, he's either, either insults. The industry, the award ceremony, or he gets like really maudlin and self pity, like uh, James like an, Mason breaks down and is like, I need a job. The Bradley Cooper and, one was far and away the most tragic. I didn't find yeah. that one as angering as the yeah, other ones did, whereas that one was just simply It was just sad. pitiful. And in a couple of the versions, he ends up accidentally hitting his wife, swings around or something, and kind of accidentally belts her. I don't know that the Oscars were televised in 37, though they wouldn't have been. That's like a private. Right. function mm-hmm. I mean, did they TV, were still relatively new TV, did they even exist in 37 but um, <laughs> only people within the industry would have seen that but by right. the time you get to the yeah the, the cooper gaga one it's humiliating and then basically after that he gets committed to a sanitarium sanatorium what's the right oh word? yeah uh because they didn't call it rehab back no then. It no like, it's like you were literally locked up in a hospital with oh, my god nurses and guards and um, we'll leave it at that. Perfect. They all have those beats. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, to kind of get like a little background history, the genesis of the story came in 32 when George Cukor, who actually ended up directing the second film, directed a movie yep. called What Price Hollywood, which was the framework for the Star is Born franchise. It's very different in tone, and it doesn't have any of it. It has no romance in it at all. You said you have not seen that, correct? I have not, but I do have like a little quote from a review that, Okay. Yeah, because it, it was. Up. But go ahead and tell me about the story. Cause yeah, I don't really know the story that well. The biggest difference is that there's no romance. Ah. The, the lead person who who helps her to get this career is actually married to a different person. It does have a similar tragic ending, but the tonal difference in What Price Hollywood is that it's played more as a dry commentary on Hollywood itself. It's a lot more sarcastic and a lot more cynical than any of the other versions are. Interesting. And, yeah, and it's a pre-code movie, so it gets mm. away with a lot more than the other ones did. There's some like risque moments in that movie, which... Wow. I think it was right, I want to say like 33, 34 is when the Hays Code was instated. I don't think it's a great film, mm-hmm. but I think as a historical piece, I think it's really worth watching. This guy, Richard Brody, who writes for The New Yorker, I believe, he's a very smart critic. He wrote this article when the new Star is Born came out, and he just wrote a paragraph or two about the earlier versions. He says about that movie, it begins with a young woman alone in a tiny apartment gazing at the pages of a movie fan magazine and donning clothing and makeup that resemble what the female stars are wearing. Finds a picture of Greta Garbo in Rapture with Clark Gable and holding it next to her face, pretending to be Garbo. She does all of this in mirrors so that she can see herself and imagine self-transformation. It's a scene of virtual and unrecorded selfies. It's media-infused. Even the romantic music accompanying the scene isn't a score but the record that she has put on and when this young woman ends up in movies it's the movies that reflect preserve and amplify 
or self transformations. That's a bit much, I realize, yeah. but um, that it leads into this 37 version. Salesnick International brings you Janet Gaynor and Frederick March with a notable supporting cast, including Adolf Manchu in the role of a producer. You're not in jail, are you? May Robson. Hello, can you hear me? Andy Devine as an assistant director. Quiet! Quiet! Lionel Stander as a headline-grabbing press agent. And Edgar Kennedy. They come to you in Hollywood's first true story, rising from the heartaches and laughter of a million men and women. Janet Gaynor and Frederick March in A Star is Born give you a Hollywood the world does not know. They answer for the first time a strange question. What is the cold fear clutching at the hearts of the famous? This version was 1937, and it was a retooled version, obviously, of What Price Hollywood. The two starring lead actors are Janet Gaynor, who's playing Esther Blodgett slash Vicky Lester, and then Friedrich March is playing the leading actor, Norman Maine. And I want to mention Adolf Menjou. Yes. Is yes. the third guy. He's the director, producer. I guess he's a producer, mm-hmm. Oliver Niles. I was not familiar with any of these three leads. I don't think I've ever seen Frederick March anything and the irony is that he was kind of an up-and-coming star at the time whereas janet gaynor was already an established janet gaynor won the very first best actress oscar ever and she won it for three movies because at the time they were going to give it for (laughs) like a body of work rather than like one performance yeah and in an interesting turn of events like art imitating life is that that ceremony her sister came with her almost pulled a norman Maine, and got like trashed when she was up there giving her speech, and she actually had to be <laughs> escorted from the ceremony, which, oh is, which is bizarre. Like, she doesn't have a lot of name cachet these days, but at the time, she was, like, the it girl. Right. She's really adorable. And if you Oh, don't, I really liked her, yeah. I don't know how into silent film you are, but the other movie that I know her for is Sunrise, The Song of Two oh, Humans. Oh, I've, I've never seen it, but I've heard nothing but great things about it. Oh, it's, it's, absolutely, it's breathtaking, and she's the lead actress in that film with a Got really it. terrible wig. Um, So it's produced by David O. Selznick Yes He's a big, big deal in Hollywood at that time A control maniac Probably most famous for producing Gone with the Wind Yeah, and this movie Uh, was a launching pad for him to produce Gone with the Wind I did not know that Yeah, he basically took the money made from this film Because it was a smash hit And used that to help fund Gone with the Wind I'm a big Alfred Hitchcock guy and he uh selznick produced rebecca which is one of hitchcock's best and so on the bonus features of the disc has got all these memos and letters from selznick to hitchcock and their correspondence is all on record and that guy was so cool was maniac really Uh, yeah i just real you know gone with the wind i'll confess i've ever seen it (laughs) no kidding wow yeah, um, I guess I should. As problematic as it may Just be a... in this day and age, it's truly an excellent movie. Okay, right, that's all. That's yeah. what I want to hear. One other One piece of, of the... trivia, too, actually, that I wanted to throw out about this. A Star is Born was the very first all-Technicolor feature-length film. The 37 version. Yeah. So I was surprised to... Well, I'm surprised to hear that fact. I guess I watched this on TCM, and... Um, at first, I thought the color in it looked kind of faded. It is. It's drab, for sure. And so I was frankly surprised doing this research to see that it was a Technicolor movie. Right. Because it I'm seems sure kind it was... of faded, but right. maybe it looked like that originally. I don't know. It could be. I'm thinking either it was because of age it could have been, but also because it was new technology at the time. They hadn't perfected it. The three-color projector, how they had the red, the green, and I think the blue 
and they created the color by blending those together so the color looked a little bit unnatural but it was eye popping interesting so yeah the director is william wellman i did not look up his credits i don't know what else he did he had like one of their i'll look it up now he had one of their big movies the script is written by a couple of people but one of the credited script writers is dorothy parker yes who is a swit from the uh, Algonquin Roundtable in Manhattan. She's a really clever writer, and apparently she's quoted as saying, well, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, yeah, I wrote on that, but none of what I wrote made it into the final draft. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's kind of... In, kind she's of one of the great wits of Kind the, of a red of... herring for her to be given credit on it. It's funny that she made that comment because a lot of it had that Dorothy Parker sarcastic touch to it. That could be an apocryphal statement frankly for sure yeah i I, I was surprised to see that she said that yeah because i I thought the same thing like oh this writing's really clever so yeah you still looking up wellman yeah the only other noteworthy one i might be thinking of somebody else was the oxbow incident which is an excellent film but i've heard yeah i've heard that's good so overall i was pleasantly surprised at how funny this movie was Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how uh scathing critique it was of the Hollywood hype machine. You know, I'll just say in general, like I'm only now at this ripe age in my early fifties <laughs> of really learning to appreciate older films. I'm not a big classic film guy, but I've had a subscription to Turner classic movies for a number of years on my cable package and I'm watching stuff and I'm filling in the gaps and picking up on stuff. 20 years ago, I would have thought this movie was a snooze probably or i wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be able to i wouldn't have the taste for it but right. i found it really engaging really funny yeah and harsh about you know hollywood itself you see the origin story of the starlet you see her at home i believe at north dakota and you see her wanting to be a star i guess she's got like she's magazines. definitely the most fame hungry of all the leading ladies You don't see this in any of the other movies. You get a hint of it with the Lady Gaga version, but this is full-on origin story. She's not even in Hollywood yet, you know, living in the middle of nowhere in North Dakota with her family, and her grandmother is the only one who takes her dream seriously. And she compares the idea of moving to Hollywood from the Midwest to an American pioneer who moved out west in a wagon train. That's how me and your grandfather got out here, was we got in a wagon and traveled out here. He killed those engines to get you (laughs) to get where we are today. (laughs) So there's this literal, like, westward expansion of Manifest Destiny. Right, right. This American idea of, like, you have a dream, you get it, girl. And so the grandmother literally gives her life Mm -hmm. savings or something to enable to fund this move. The whole like honeymoon expedition in their airstream <laughs> is very funny, and they yes. get they get stuck in the mud at some point, and uh, some local hick drives by, and they have <laughs> to ask scene. for help, and it's goofy. And it was just a surprise to me that the movie works on on these multiple levels. It's new to me to recognize that, like, oh, they were making quality movies back in the thirties. Racial politics were a nightmare. <laughs> right. Yeah, back. that's the only probably the only they kind of, bummer. They kind but... of avoid that in this movie and the gender politics were probably pretty stiff but i guess setting the movie in hollywood like the woman is allowed to not be a housewife because the movie's about her trying to become a star right janet gainer doesn't quite have the same commanding presence as the other leading ladies but i think that works to the the character's advantage and some of the other ones their star quality is almost distracting yes you know and where this is you can really get into the story because to us in 2018 she is basically a nobody 
not yeah. to be harsh, but I mean, in our popular culture, she doesn't have as much. Their pull. first meeting where they really click is where her buddy mm-hmm. gets her a gig hostessing at a party. So she's basically a waitress at a Hollywood party with all these big name people there. And Norman Maine is a guest there. I love how in that scene, she's trying to mimic all these famous actors to get the attention of the, of the producers <laughs> there. Like she's doing like her Catherine Hepburn and her <laughs> Mae West. And they're all just rolling right. their eyes at her. Like, come on, lady, just give us our food. <laughs> right. Yeah, she's really hungry. She's yeah. really, it's very cute. It's very funny. Maine is drunk, but he's not totally obnoxious. Again, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with Frederick March either. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was totally charming. I thought he was I great. I love him in this movie. He's a very handsome man. Probably the best looking of all the lead uh, actors. In point, my yeah. opinion. And the two of them really worked well together. They had nice chemistry. And uh, yeah, I, I totally bought their romance. Yeah. He uh, jumps in his sports car. He's drunk driving all over LA. <laughs> drops her off at her boarding house. Right. And I guess he wants to go in or wants to get a kiss or something. And that doesn't happen. That's where the famous, uh, hey. What? I just want to get another look at you because he's about to drive away. And it's just so sweet. And that is in all four movies. It sure is. <laughs> that sequence. Yep. And it brings back memories of when you first meet somebody. And wow, I just met this person. And what if I never see them again? Especially somebody you it's made a connection totally to. random. Yeah. He brings her to his studio. And that's where this uh, Oliver Niles guy comes in. I thought he was really great, too. Adolf uh, Yeah, Manchu, he was good. Kind of a father figure. Another humorous scene is where he's uh, trying to come up with a new name for her. And One of my favorite goes, moments. He goes through this whole rhyming scheme and basically. Yeah. Oh, can I know, can I tell you how much I love Matt Libby in this movie? He, he's one of my other okay, favorites, so, too. <laughs> so you know who he is? That is Lionel Stander, who was the butler slash chauffeur on Heart to Heart. Oh, get out of here. Okay. In the 80s. Wow. <laughs> Mrs. Art. Yeah. Uh, I recognized him right away when he pops up in this movie. Oh, like, my gosh. Holy crap. <laughs> and he's so young. From Heart to Heart. And it is him. Wow. Yeah, I was blown away. And he is so funny. He is sensational. This movie. He's so cranky. Do you know what her name is? <laughs> Esther. Victoria Blodgett. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I to say that, that about, about, so uh, Esther is a biblical name and it literally means star. Oh, wow. In Persian. It is hmm. a variation of Ishtar and it means like star, rising star, morning star. So Esther is the lead character's name in the first three versions. I have no idea. Well, I guess I know why <laughs> Lady Gaga is not called that because nobody's named Esther anymore. Right. <laughs> but it, it is a uh, biblical name. There was a period in the 500 BCs, maybe. There was a group of Jewish exiles living in Persia, which is what, like Iran, Iraq, basically? Um, it's Iran right um, now, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they were living there in exile, and the king Xerxes mm-hmm. was displeased with his wife. He held a beauty pageant <laughs> to find a new queen, and Esther, this Jewess from this exile community, won. But I don't think he knew she was Jewish. Oh, and um, and so he marries her, and then there's all this various political struggle or something, mm-hmm. and uh, it ends up resulting in the Jews killing all their enemies. All because she had the ear of the king who was in love with her. So he basically granted the Jews the power to kill all their enemies. Wow. And they killed <laughs> like 75,000 people. And that's what the Jewish celebration of 
Purim is based oh, on. Okay. So that's not alluded to or hinted at in any of these movies, but I just found I found it interesting. It is interesting because it, it's fitting with the films. Yeah. One of the reasons I think this movie worked as well as it did for me is it was a very economical telling of the story. It was not bloated. Oh, it wasn't. It's only two hours. It's under two hours. It's like an hour 45, I think, or something. Like an hour All 50. All the others are longer than two hours. Yep. All the rest yeah. of them, there are moments where I was feeling like this is a little bit too long. Right. It's amazing how if you don't have any musical numbers, your movie doesn't have to be <laughs> three hours long. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I kind of want to wrap this up, too, on this mm -hmm. movie. Uh, so the two big surprises to me were the willingness to de depict the crass commercial of Hollywood as a star-making machine. It is implied that this is just the way Hollywood does things. They find new people, suck them into the machine, and then put them through the grinder and spit them out at the end. And she is just part of a, uh, a pattern. The movie opens and closes with uh, literal shots of script of the movie itself that you're seeing, as in you know, literally saying, like, this is a story. This mm -hmm. is a fable. Yeah. And uh, this is what you do here in Hollywood. And it doesn't glorify their own image at all. One other thing that I've enjoyed, too, is seeing L.A. and Hollywood in the 30s, like the Grumman's Chinese Theater Holy and the, crap, and the yes. Walk of Fame, like what it, what it was like back then with the Shirley Temple and Janet Gaynor's own handprints can be seen in one of the shots in the film. Oh, they had really? to like try and edit it out as much as they could not, so it wouldn't be too, you know, <laughs> meta. <laughs> so, yeah, so that kind of brings up why this would have been a success at the time. Hollywood was pretty new in 37 as an industry town in America and the world was fascinated by it. Movies hadn't even been around for 30 Sound years. Sound movies or... hadn't even been around for <laughs> not even a decade <laughs> at that point. Right. So I think that this whole myth was highly appealing to everybody around the country, mm -hmm. stuck in North Dakota in dead-end jobs, yeah. housewives, <laughs> husbands, farmers, whatever. Like It was escapist. You know, yeah. I, It's still that way, but it must have been back then without social media and without TV and <laughs> streaming services like, right it's going wild. to the movies was a big deal the other real surprise to me was the, its depiction of alcoholism prohibition ended in 1933 wow. so that's only four years before this was made you know and if you study the history of prohibition like you realize that there was a whole like temperance movement for decades yeah. before prohibition even went into effect so people have known about the perils of drinking for centuries, became codified into law at the beginning of the 20th century, and then was repealed. And I didn't realize that they were making movies about it. The whole film is really gutsy for this time. Yeah, we're kind of used to it now, so it didn't really shock me in the, in the Bradley Cooper one. But yeah, when you transplant it into a film from the 30s, it's very obviously from the 30s. It subverts that and becomes very shocking. Yeah, it was nominated for seven Yes. It only won for best writing, which is good. It's a great script. Yeah, it is and a great a script. And a special award cinematography, which must be related to the Technicolor. It must aspect. be. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So this starts a trend of Star is Born movies. A lot of award notice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of nominations yep. for actors and actresses and directing and best picture. And then not any of those awards. Yes. <laughs> a trend that a it has kept to its day to this day. To <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, after the movie, various radio play adaptations were made. Yeah, some of which are available on YouTube. Oh, okay. In the 40s, some of which for Judy Garland. Yes. As Esther Blodgett. 
Radio Theater brings you Judy Garland and Walter Pidgeon in A Star is Born. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Hey, wait. Yes, what is it? Do you mind... Do you mind if I take just one more look? <laughs> Good night. Good night. That's an old-fashioned... Uh mode of entertainment oh yeah you'll play with it's kind of like podcasting in the 30s yeah fictionalized podcast series it's almost bringing that style of entertainment back to mainstream yeah so that creates a link to judy garland what am i here for it's time you knew here's what i'm here for i'm here for you can you forgive me? Am I too late? All the years that I wandered and pondered were squandered. My heart is... You read the Lorna Luft book. Yes, I have it sitting right in true? front of me right now. I've only seen this movie once. Mm -hmm. I'll s confess right up front. I had to watch it over two nights because... It's Frankly, very the, long. The middle, the long musical sequence kind of broke my. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, it was late at night and I just, I just had to stop and restart it yeah. the next day. I would say I don't know the ins and outs of this version that well. Yes. But you and this is have a, seen this movie many times. I have. <laughs> <laughs> and it has a very storied history, that's for sure. Yes. I love this version. And so I, I'm probably a little bit biased, but I, I think it's maybe the most emotionally rewarding for me. It's very long. It, it, it is a little bit too long, but that's a complicated thing. I want to say I'm looking forward to watching it again, knowing more about its history. I guess I'm also just going to be maybe little devil's advocate here and sure. say mm -hmm. I'm happy that you loved it because I did not love up and down. I'm just going to indulge that. <laughs> sure, yeah. A little bit as we talk about it, but I'm looking forward to seeing it again because it is I could definitely recognize that it's a masterpiece of craft and, and it has a lot of peak emotions in it. It does. And I think what really the title of Lorna Luft's book is the film that got away and I think that's pretty uh, it's on the nose in the, in the most beautiful way because obviously the signature song from that is The Man That Got Away. But also, too, it did get away as a piece of film because when it first came out, the original running time was 181 minutes. And our, in its current form, I think it's like 170. So there's still. Like, I have written 176. Okay. So there's still there's a chunk of the movie that is lost forever. And that Lorna has been trying. Lorna Luff being Judy Garland's daughter, if, if, if for listeners who might was not she, know. Um, so, yeah, was she born, even born at that time? She was an infant while she was filming this movie. There's actually many okay. pictures of her in the book on set as a young child. There's an anecdote in the book about when she first saw the movie in the 70s. She didn't like it all, at all when she first saw it. She didn't understand the, <laughs> the hype behind it either, which is kind of funny. Um, she, all she took out of it from her first viewing of it was, oh, that featured a lot of my furniture in this movie. Because <laughs> they were using her, their furniture from their house, I guess, for budgetary constraints or what have you. There's a chunk of the film that she's kind of resigned to the fact that it's lost forever. And when it came out, the studio heads recognized that its length was too indulgent. So they whittled it down to two and a half hours, which is not an action that I'm opposed to. The problem was they did it without consulting George Cukor, the director, who originally didn't yeah. want to do the film. And they did it without consulting 
Judy Garland or Sid Luft, who was her husband and had his hand in the making of the film. And so it led to the narrative of the movie being greatly affected by it. A lot of very jarring and abrupt changes. A lot of the story was compromised and the footage eventually faded away and was unusable. And so in the early 80s, when they were reassembling the movie, they had to resort to using still photographs of these scenes. So, yeah, I found that very confusing. Yeah. And not knowing that fact. Yes. It's Um, bizarre. (laughs) So that restoration slash reconstruction was done in the 80s. Yes. Because somebody had found the soundtrack. There was some kind of like practice where some of the editing took place by film projectionists in the 50s where there, it came with like instructions to like trim here, trim there. And mm-hmm. I guess she, they somehow came upon the complete audio soundtrack without the actual footage. Right. And so they put together all the audio track that, as much as they had, and then they took those still photographs and superimposed them to where they felt was appropriate for the soundtrack. Okay, but before 83, if you saw that movie, you would have been getting... those sequences would not have been there at all. Correct. And those are kind of bridging sequences. I found it a shocking aesthetic choice because you're seeing film stills taken on set, but they're all in C-toned or black and white. Yes. But you're hearing dialogue. They seem like they're intentionally montages. They're collapsing, you know, a series of months or weeks or of activity, mm-hmm. either in their home life or their careers. Seemed intentional, but... I was just baffled by it. So yeah. I can't even say whether they worked or not. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking either. them as face value as this is what the director intended. Right. And that's not, that's not, not at all the case. One of them has all these like almost cheesecake photos of Judy Garland sitting. Like by a pool. Yeah. <laughs> poolside in a, in a swimming suit. And I'd never seen pictures of her in a swimsuit because I took a bunch of shots of them. I was like, God, she looks so gorgeous. Yeah. And yet, like she's famous for having struggling with weight problems and mm-hmm. constantly being told that she was overweight. Like, right. She yeah. was the Norman and, Maine of this production. Yeah. And this was this vehicle was intended to be her comeback because she was famously kicked out of MGM. And another thing too about the length, particularly the born in the trunk scene in the middle, which is very indulgent, but <laughs> <laughs> but that was very much in vogue with the times. That was the golden era of the Hollywood musical. Every year they were churning out tons of big budget, long three hour epic musicals. Yeah. Like a little it was a little before like Sound of Music, but even Cukor after that went on to direct My Fair Lady, which is the same kind of thing and the and Gigi and all the Rogers and Hammerstein ones pre Sound of Music were all like that. And so that was right. just kind of in keeping with the times and particularly that sequence, like you have Singing in the Rain that has a scene like that. And American in yes. Paris, which all famously have scenes that cut right into the middle of the narrative to have this really over-the-top, eye-popping medley number. So that Those was that was taken from look that. fantastic. The numbers are peppy. She is a great performer. But it also has very little bearing on the story. I'll confess I could about that because I've seen in reviews people say, oh, well, if you listen to the songs and the lyrics, it's I kind was... of documenting her journey and i didn't catch that so i I had a note about that actually that you say that because i was sort of unclear with that sequence because it does go through a a story arc like she's saying she's born in a trunk in pocatel idaho and she found that she was um that she could sing and then in the next cut it goes to her with her quote-unquote parents but i guess my question was was, that's then that links to that story in the first movie right but i was curious as to if that was fictionalized for that musical number or if that was actually what the character's story was Uh, you know because it's not totally clear but i but watching it this latest time that i that i'd seen it 
I kind of took it as like, oh, that must be how she's laying out her background story because we don't get out any other backstory. So I grew up in a crazy world of dressing rooms and hotel rooms and waiting rooms and rooms behind the scenes. And I can't forget the endless rows of sleepless nights and eatless nights and nights without a nickel in my jeans but it's all in the game and the way you play it and you gotta play the game you know when you're born in a trunk at the princess So I was also confused. Are we seeing a live performance or are we watching a movie? It's a movie within a movie. It's a premiere of her debut in in film, of Vicki Lester's debut in film. Because it was confusing because earlier in the movie and later in the movie, we see her actually perform on stage Correct, with her yeah. band and she's already a performing musician with a band she hasn't hit it yeah. big but she we don't see her move to hollywood she's already there already doing her thing. right and it's then that she meets norman Maine. and uh, and in fact i think she's performing on stage <laughs> with her band when he drunkenly stumbled on stage that's where he during meets her. her performance yeah yeah. Like so he pulls he, a he Kanye actually... the first time we see him. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And she's like dumbstruck, like, who who the fuck are you? Like, she knows who he is, but she's like, what are you? You know, what? It's right. funny. And yeah. she kind of but, does, but, she, but, she handles it well. She just kind of makes it like a comical part of her act. Of her she, exactly. She yeah. integrates right away. It's yeah. like this brilliant kind of like, uh, you know, improvisation. Yeah. And he likes that. And, but she does not take him seriously. No. You know? <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, George Cukor did not want to do this movie at first because he had already done What Price Hollywood. I believe he was offered the first version, the 37 version, and turned that down. Yes, he was offered that. Yes, you're right. And I think he only signed on to this project because he wanted to work with Judy Garland. But she was not on her best behavior during filming. Uh, Of this? Really? Yes. She was late all the time. Her weight kept fluctuating. She was hiding pills around. It was not a good situation. And I guess what had happened, they filmed a good chunk of the film, but similar into the first movie where it introduced the Technicolor, the studio intervened well into the production, told them to scrap everything because they wanted it to be filmed in Cinemascope, which was a brand new technology, like the big 55 millimeter. So they had to scrap it all, restart everything with the new cameras and whatnot. That was a big inconvenience, to say the least. And um, James Mason was far from the first choice. They wanted Cary Grant to play the part, and they wined and dined him as much as possible to get him to play the role, but ultimately he didn't want to portray an alcoholic on the screen. He thought it would be bad for publicity. Judy made a comment afterwards. He's like, man, I wish we could take back all those dinners we gave <laughs> I have to admit, I'm not the biggest James Mason fan. Yeah, me I, too. He's fine, but he didn't wow me. I felt kind of distant from him. But I guess it's hard to share a stage with like a superhuman talent like Judy Garland and not be dwarfed by that. Right. And also, one other thing about the Born in the Trunk sequence was that that was filmed completely after Cucor had already finished and moved on to a new project. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> that says a lot, too, about the jarring shift 
yeah the left turn that movie takes during that sequence i guess i i know of her as a film actress not as much as like a recording artist i just upcoming rock solid album of the days is gonna be judy at carnegie hall which i just listened to yesterday at work and in the car and it's a two cd set and it was recorded in 1961 and mm-hmm. it got me curious about her recording career how successful was as a as a recording artist and whether that started after i was well her, her recording career, career yes it's pretty much exactly what happened because the star was born she was so disheartened by everything that happened and she was exhausted by it and the fact that she was kind of duped from the oscars she was just so disheartened that she Spoilers. really just turned it oh well Sorry, <laughs> eh, I'll cut that part out. <laughs> but she, no, no, no. <laughs> she went and turned to to, to performing basically full time on Got stage. It. But it's not like she, she didn't have like a split career making records. And no, making no. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I wanted to say a couple things. Uh, I'll say a couple things about Judy Garland in general. But I, I want to just quickly run through George Cukor. You know, I've been catching up on old classic movies the last couple years. Yeah. And I've been pleased by the quality of these movies. And um, George Cukor, I recently saw The Women that he directed from Oh, yeah. And actually, have, I have not seen with, that movie. Uh, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford in a small part. All the main characters are women. I think there might not even be a man in the movie at all. But it's all dialogue scenes between these various kind of high society ladies. And they're very gossips and stuff. And yeah. I guess there's something known as pictures <laughs> and uh george kukor was great at them he was a gay man i don't think i don't know if he was out but i guess people knew he was gay and hmm. give a shit or whatever but yeah, he directed a bunch of great movies uh philadelphia story adam's rib gaslight as you said my fair lady and this i did not know he started but was fired from the wind in 1939, yeah. he spent two years involved with pre-production <laughs> of Gone with <laughs> Only Men. to be fired. <laughs> Only to be fired. And then this also I did not know. Kukor spent a week on the set of The Wizard of Oz. Although he filmed no footage, he made crucial changes to the look of Dorothy by eliminating Judy Garland's blonde wig <laughs> and adjusting her makeup and costume, encouraging her to act in a more natural manner. Additionally, Kukor softened the Scarecrow's make and gave Margaret Hamilton a different hairstyle for the Wicked Witch of the West, as well as altering her makeup and other facial features. Kukor also suggested that the studio cast Jack Haley as the Tin Man. So I never knew that I... Judy Garland was supposed to be blonde in that movie. <laughs> I did not know that either. <laughs> right. So... She was blonde briefly in A Star is Born. <laughs> Oh, yeah, right. So he's super talented, and this movie looks great and has, like I said, a lot of great scenes. Just looking at my cast list, again, the producer's name is Oliver Niles. This time he's played by Charles Bickford. He's a little stiff and a little cold, maybe. He is, yeah. He's very, uh, very like, by the book. Yeah, by the book. He doesn't have the, the warmth. No, he does earlier version. The Matt Libby press agent character is played by Jack Carson, and he's really fun. Yeah, I, I liked him in this. He also gets punched at a bar. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> so that beats the same. And then there's that Danny McGuire character in the band, and he's the good friend to Jimmy yeah. Garland. Well, it's ironic that you said Cary Grant. This is this is a tangent. Um, <laughs> I guess at some point during the 90s, I had a personal computer, you know, a Macintosh. <laughs> oh, and, yes. <laughs> uh, it was the old school, like, big, you know, with your hard drives. Oh, yeah. Oh, I had one know, of those, too. Separate. 
monitor, <laughs> which weighed, you know, hundreds of pounds. Right. And uh, at one point, I named my hard drive Judy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because you could customize. I think I had more than one hard drive at the time because mm-hmm. they were so small back then. Right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I named it Judy. And my girlfriend at the time was jealous of the fact that I named my computer after a woman and I was like well I and I didn't have any clear reason why and I said well you know like Judy 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 um that <laughs> famous Cary Grant line and it just just completely confused her and like why you know, why did you name your hard drive after Judy Garland and I did I did not have any clear reason and then in doing research for this, I checked out where the origin of that Judy, 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 and it is credited to Cary Grant, but he never actually said it. It's based on a comedian at the time doing an imitation of Cary Grant, and that oh, no kidding. got traction. And and this, so there's there's interviews later in his life of people asking Cary Grant about that phrase, and he says, "I never said that. You know, huh. I said Judy once or Judy twice." and and I introduced Judy Garland on stage, but there weren't ever. Um, wow. But this name, but this <laughs> so this funny. Judy 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 imitation has kind of outlived like its its actual origin. But somehow that stuck in my mind. It's really crazy because Wizard of Oz, which again, what is that? Nineteen thirty nine. Thirty nine. Yeah. As a kid, that was growing up in the seventies. Every Thanksgiving, some TV station would play The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, so this is pre-VHS, pre-cable TV. That was like a, an event to see yeah. The Wizard of Oz as a kid. That was like the and, only time my parents would let me stay up late was to watch The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and so I loved that movie as a kid. And, I, and then I was pleasantly surprised as an adult. And that it holds up that yeah. it is a literally a magical movie. And she is transcendent in it. And I think as a kid, you know, I identified with her. And then as an adult, I just was in love with her. She's so pure. Despite all her demons, you know. She was 17 years old when she made that movie. And I think she probably was already pills because apparently, you know, that was what the studios did to their young stars was like, hey, work all day. (laughs) Um, You need to take these to keep yourself together. Yeah. Here's some pills. So, you know, the common belief now is that the studios turned her into a drug addict, basically. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah. For all intents and purposes, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, just to close the circle, mm-hmm. I'd recommend that at Carnegie Hall album, if oh, anyone hasn't so heard good. it. It's, yeah. it's really tremendous. That, so that's 61. She died in 1969. 69, yeah. And she was only 47 years old when she died. So sad. And when you see her in later footage, she looks much older than that. Insane. And I think she even sounds older than that at some time in this album. Yep. Yeah, I just saw a clip of her on, like, the Johnny Carson show. Yeah, she looks like she's 60 years old. I guess the official verdict, like, she was ill. Did she die of an overdose, or was it, like, complications of... I think the complications were brought upon by her substance abuse. Her her substance abuse had kind of wrecked her body, but she did not intentionally kill herself. Right, right. Going back to that book, mm-hmm. she and Luft were married, right? But yes. She had a number of husbands before and after Luft, though, right? Vincent yeah. Minnelli, she was married. Or... Vincent Minnelli, yeah. 
I don't know if she was married again after Sid. I, she may have yeah, been. You Let might me be see. Right. She had Liza with Sid, or with Vincent. That she had Lorna with Sid. Oh, and that she had a son after that, I think, also with Sid. Okay, cool. Three things that killed my buzz. You already mentioned it. James mm-hmm. Mason, who's a <laughs> yeah. fine actor. He's excellent in Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. Which I still need to see, yeah. Which is an amazing movie, but yeah. apparently people who are familiar with the book don't really love the movie because he changes a lot of stuff. Oh, okay. Um, apparently, but he's really outstanding in that. Mm-hmm. Um, truly like a conflicted <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, anti-hero, let's say. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, most, but generally I find Mason stiff. So in some ways I don't always buy their romance in this version. And I find it weird that, well, and this leads to my second buzzkill is that he never sings. I guess maybe he dances with her in one scene, but... You know, I had that note, too. In all the other versions, his talent is established, and we get a sense of why he's famous, but we don't in this version. And in fact, in all all the other versions, you see the two leads collaborate. Right. Whether it's in a movie or in a song or on stage, and he just seems kind of out of his element whenever Judy's doing her thing. And, uh, you know, I certainly never knew of james mason as being a song and dance man but i just <laughs> found it odd that yeah. he's like segregated to that and yeah you make a good point i don't know that we ever really ever see him doing well in a movie i guess there's a scene where he's like watching footage of himself he's kind of like holed up in the mansion like watching some of his old movies you get the sense that he's faded but you also never really saw him excelling in his art so this second thing that buzz was that there's a lot of musical numbers that seem disconnected from the story. Are you a musical person? Okay, well, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. And then smack dab in the middle of that Born on the Trunk sequence is like a couple of racist songs. Yeah, like that's true. The Swanee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Swanee, and there's like a whole like yellow face kind of thing. I mean, I don't think anyone's literally wearing yellow face, but there's like Chinese accent. Am I crazy? I don't remember that. I don't know if I remember that one. I could be confusing it with another musical, but the whole Swanee thing. And like, I looked that up cause she does that song on that, uh, 61 Carnegie hall record. Mm. <laughs> I was like, what is this bullshit? Right. And it turns out it's an Al Jolson song. Yes. With in, Nami. Like, from yeah. 1919. And <laughs> like he used to perform sometimes in blackface. And oh, it's yeah. like this song about like the good old South. And I miss all my old good family <laughs> from the South. And wasn't it great being by my mammy and like things were good <laughs> those are the good old days yep and that just like it hits my ear wrong now swanee how i love you how i love you my dear old swanee the folks up north will see me no more when i get to that swanee so It's so hard it, it, watching something like that in a 2018 lens. You know, I, uh, I not, I'm certainly not advocating cutting it or, or, or censoring it, but it hasn't aged well. You know, vaudeville was a big thing. And so she's hearkening back to like people of that generation. That would make sense. It'd mm-hmm. be like someone playing a, you know, a Chuck Berry song or screw it, playing a Beatles song. But some of those other songs are great. And she she's great i do have to give it up for the man that got away and it's it's so it's really timeless and she sings the fuck out of it yeah 
and I'm not remembering the context in the movie. Like, is that a, a movie sequence? Or no, is that, that like, was that's or like is that like a a cabaret. That's a cabaret. Oh, that. in fact, she's probably playing in, with her band mm-hmm. with her buddy in a little yeah, in a, like a dark old. room after hours when yeah James yeah. Mason and I, th- walks I believe in. he comes in and sees them performing. Is yes, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah. the the intimacy of that moment. Really works well. Right, and then the text to the guy who she's just being now and is going to get away. <laughs> She's going to lose it by the end of the movie. Yeah. So she's kind of predicting the arc of their relationship. The night is bitter. The stars have lost their glitter. The winds grow colder. Suddenly you're older. And all because of the man that got away. Did my favorite version of the man that got away, and I was—I was going to huh. mention that he did. Yeah, <laughs> I knew him kind of in when he was in New York City, right before he got signed by Columbia. And mm. I used to—he was friends of a friend, and so I got to hang out with him and see him perform before he got really big. And it was a real shock when he died. He he drowned, and it was an accident, supposedly. But yeah, I know there's a uh, lot of speculation. Right, I saw him perform solo mm-hmm. more than I saw him play with his band. Um, the band stuff was fine. It, when he performed solo, was really magical because he would pull out covers. Yeah, he would do like he did The Smiths. He did Led Zeppelin. He did Nina Simone. All that stuff has like a lot of that has come out since then. Like he's had a number of like uh, some of these cafe shows come out. So, yeah. but I, I don't think I knew that song well enough. The road is bitter. The stars have lost their glitter. The winds grow colder. Suddenly you're older. And all because of the man that got away. No more his eager call The writings on the wall The dreams you've dreamed Have all gone astray I'll link to a video that somebody made that actually does what we're doing right now comparing all four versions and she includes the scene where she's to the producer and confessing that she hates her husband and she hates herself for not being able to help him and it's gripping it like is. her performance is fantastic and yeah and it gains weight knowing that she's talking about herself mm-hmm. you know she's playing the su- the, the long suffering uh, wife of this self abusing genius but that's her. And so she's like commenting on her own life by playing this outside role. 
afraid to go home to him at night. Listen to his lies. Well, my heart goes out to him because he tries. He does try. But I hate him for failing. I hate me, too. I hate me because I failed, too. I have. I don't know what's going to happen to us, Oliver. No matter how much you love somebody, how do you live out the days? How? So I just wish Mason had the same opportunity to deliver some emotion. I do fault the script to a degree. Yeah, I didn't find any notes about whether anybody famous wrote that version. And then the third thing that buzz was, yeah, those those montage restored scenes. More more because yeah. I found them confusing aesthetically. I'm not trying to shit on this movie. Oh, no, I totally <laughs> I mean, understand, I'm, yeah. Like, I, you know, indulging my negative feelings just to, to, to get some kind of, uh, you know, back and forth with you because I know you love it and I know people love it and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Yeah, um, no, so I, I do not I disparage anybody if I sound too harsh. No, not at all. I don't disparage anyone from disliking this film because there definitely are some things that do not work. But I think on the whole, I, I like I said, I think it's Judy that really makes the film as regarded as it is. And I do like the production values a lot. Love it. Yeah, I, I do love the musical great. numbers. That's why the movie works for me. Yeah, I guess the thing about the length of them, I'm not saying they're boring. or It's more that they're distracting and that they're more like, wow, is the only reason this movie exists to showcase Sid Luft's wife's talent? It's like a movie, but then it's like a long-form music video is injected into the middle of this narrative movie. I could argue that you could accuse really all of the last three star and spawns of the exact same thing. Like All of them are a showcase for their stars. Maybe less so the Gaga version, but absolutely the Streisand version, I would think, could be accused of the same thing. And those songs even aren't that good. They're not. Yeah, we'll, get to, we'll get to that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it is kind of like a vanity project. God, that must have sucked to be her. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> to have been, you know, Ugh. this huge child star and then like struggle the rest of your life, like trying to live up to that. To wrap up. Is that OK? Yeah, absolutely. On this one. Nominated for six Oscars. It won mm. none. <laughs> When the Oscar for Best Actress went to Grace Kelly instead of Judy Garland, Groucho Marx called it the biggest robbery since Brinks. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that Grace Kelly movie, I, I didn't even write down the title of it. It was something I'd never heard of before. You know, Grace Kelly's talented, beautiful actress, but it's that same, it's that pattern again. of like, everybody loved this movie and wow, she's so great in it. And then the backlash she's, begins. She's a lock. Yep. And then something else happens. It, but yeah. Judy, there was a lot of politics at play, too, particularly because a lot of the voting body was, uh, I almost said Eminem, <laughs> a lot of the vote, voting body was from MGM, and they were not about to cast votes for her because she was cast away from their studio, and that really hurt her chances. Do you own this? Do you have a I disc do. of it? Or, yes, I yeah. do. Is there anything extra <laughs> on it? Like, are there um, any documentaries or commentaries there is but i'm going to be honest i haven't looked at them yet (laughs) i haven't checked them out yet but yeah there there are a couple it's an older dvd oh but um but there's like a running commentary through the movie 
And with that, we'll stop for this episode. Please make sure to download part two, where Dave and I go off the deep end and analyze the 1976 and 2018 versions of A Star is Born. We'll also feature a mini-survey where we'll pick some of our favorite and some of our least favorite elements of all the films and choose our final rankings. And we'll also get into some spoilers. So if you'd like to read up more on any of the movies that we talked about in this episode, please refer to the episode description box and the show notes on our website for our bibliography and links to some videos and sound clips. If you'd like to reach out to either Dave or myself, you can find me on Twitter at RockMoviesPod and Dave at CultDung, or you can send me an email at MoviesAtRockPod at gmail.com. Also, please don't forget to leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts as it helps people to find the show. We're also available for streaming on Spotify. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goes that long face, that long face. Go along and get that long face lost. The blues black out when they can see. A smile that says move on, no vacancy. This panacea idea. I'm handing you without any cost There isn't any tax on it So just relax on it If you want trouble, double cross Don't give in to a frown Turn that frown